listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza. With COVID still in our communities and keeping us indoors, the team here at La Raza Chronicles is doing their best to keep you informed on what is happening in the Bay Area and beyond. Producing the show from our makeshift home studios, the sound quality may not be 100%, but we're keeping the content fresh. We continue to stand in solidarity with our essential workers, brothers and sisters, and the Black Lives Matter movement. Nina Serrano brings you an interview with the members of the Peralta Hacienda Historical Park and the rethinking of the nation's colonizing history. Julieta Kuznir interviews media strategist, professor, and author Roberto Lovato about his newly released memoir, Unforgetting. La Raza Chronicles is produced by Nina Serrano, Julieta Kuznir, Greg Landau, and myself, Brenda Yescas. Stay tuned. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. Chronicas de la Raza. My segment today is on the nationwide focus on rethinking our colonizing and racist history. Oakland's Peralta Hacienda Historical Park is now holding a public discussion about changing their name and inviting the public to join the conversation. Our guests today are Diane Wong, educator at Peralta Hacienda, and Holly Alonso, executive director of Peralta Hacienda Historical Park. They're here on Zoom today to share the public conversation and their upcoming events with you, our listeners. Welcome, Diane Wang. Hello, Nina. I'm so glad to join you. The same. And welcome Holly Alonso, Executive Director and Conductor of this public conversation. Thank you so much, Nina. I'm so happy to be with you at this conversation today. I'll begin our discussion with you, Holly, and about how and why the process began and how you went about creating a public conversation. Then I want to discuss with you, Diane Wong, your upcoming events and exhibits. Let's begin, Holly, with how this all started. What brought the issue up for you? During my years of research uh, to create exhibits for the Peralta House, the name Peralta Hacienda Historical Park always seemed weird because I saw from day one that there were two histories that were inextricably intertwined, Peraltas and the native peoples of the region. And the exhibits that we developed reflect that intertwining, but the name did not. Could you tell us who the Peraltas were, many of us don't. Uh, the Peraltas were a land-grant family that were brought here on the Ansa expedition in 1776, uh, bring the native peoples of this region into the missions to work as agricultural workers. Luis Peralta, the patriarch of that family, received a land grant of 45,000 acres of East Bay land at the end of his military service of 35 years. And during that time, the Spanish soldiers, in order to bring laborers into the mission, 
went on raids throughout this region and beyond, even up to the Sierra foothills. And the problem was that the native peoples kept dying in the missions. So they had to go out further and further in every ever widening circles. And it really was a vicious cycle because they basically, in getting the workers and then having them die in the missions, they never really achieved their goal and the native peoples were nearly annihilated. I have to say right now though, that native peoples of this area are undergoing today a flowering and recovering and recapturing their experience, but also singing about it to the hilltops for all of us to, to take advantage of all that they know about life and land. You know, the fact that the Peralta name goes down in our region uh, as a place name for many streets and things like that. The whole issue of the name was brought to my attention very powerfully when we had a performance last October and Corinna Gould, who is one of the foremost Ohlone activists representing the native peoples of this area, referred to her, her introduction at Peralta Hacienda to Luis Peralta as a murderer. And I realized we really need to bring this story of the native peoples of this area much more powerfully to the fore. And so she and I have become actually collaborators in this project. And it's really, really interesting to hear her point of view about the name. So then how did this become a public conversation to the point that you wanted to change your name? Well, so the board of directors and I had been talking about the necessity to change the name for actually a couple of years, even before Corinna's uh, appearance. And then when the whole country erupted in anger about the way history was represented, for instance, of the Confederacy and of California history with you know, Queen Isabella of Spain being there in front of our state capital and so on. I thought, we all thought, well, no more dithering. Let's, let's do it. Uh, let's, let's really reconsider with the native peoples of this area and not only the native peoples, but the neighbors who live in, around the park and even throughout Oakland and in Fruitvale where the park is located today because the native peoples and the current neighbors are both the most important stakeholders uh, in this discussion. And so we, we sent out a sort of a provocative email about the name change process. And we got floods of responses from many people with very divergent opinions. What were some of them? Well, we got uh, some really wonderful ones from institutions such as the National Park Service saying they want to be involved in this process. Uh, we got several from descendants of the Californios, those who came on the ANSA expedition and whose families were granted these vast expanses of land, wanting to keep the name Perata. And we got uh, many responses from neighbors saying they wanted the, the word Hacienda, which actually translates specifically in, into plantation in English to go. And then we got a lot of responses from Native peoples about possible beautiful names uh, that connected to the Native history of the site. One of the most interesting responses I thought was from Corinna herself, 
And she said that taking away a name can have the effect of erasing a history that has to be remembered. And so she didn't want to excise the word Peralta from the name because that painful history, we have to acknowledge what happened. And so that is part of the story. I would say the general consensus is to include the native names. Some, some neighbors though felt that the name shouldn't have any one history uh, foregrounded, that we really want to above all in Oakland be inclusive. So all those voices is, are what will be heard in this discussion over the next couple of months. And we're sort of aiming maybe for six months process to get the new name. Holly, how can our listeners participate in the conversation? We will be having public discussions. And if you want to be a part of it, email us at info at org, And we will keep you uh, informed of all of the activities connected with this process. Can you please repeat that? Sure. It's info, I-N-F-O, at Peralta Hacienda, that's P-E-R-A-L-T-A-H-A-C-I-E-N-D-A, dot org, Peralta Hacienda dot org. And then that makes them part of the conversation? Exactly. Yes. And we will keep them, we will put them on the list to be informed of everything that happens. And, you know, if they somehow didn't get that, that email address, they can go onto our website, which is peraltahacienda.org, and we'll have a, a link there uh, to get into the conversation. So how extensive is this conversation, the public part of it? So the first thing we've done is bring together a group of historians and Native Americans from Fruitvale, but also from the wider Ohlone community. And we've had two five to six hour Zoom meetings about the not only the naming, but the whole Native American story of the site. So that's a very extended conversation. And then for the public at large, we will have at least two or three meetings where we invite you know, everyone to chime in. Then, of course, there are stakeholders like the city of Oakland. And renaming a public place like this is a bureaucratic procedure that gives me a headache, but they'll have to participate too. So does that mean you have to get the city council to agree? Yes, city council and parks and rec. It's very interesting right now. Concord Hills Regional Park, which has been established on the Naval Weapons Station, is right at this point going through a naming process. And they, like us, have brought in a lot of uh, Native Americans very specific to that particular site. And so that will be, their voices will be very much uh, listened to and important. But the wider listenership of KPFA and Oakland residents and Fruitvale neighbors of the park will be welcomed into this process also. I wonder if the Chicano community had a a distinct opinion. Great question, Nina, because we're very, of course, involved with the Latino community in Fruitvale and Oakland as a whole. And many, as you know, identify much more strongly with their native roots than with the Spanish imperial roots. 
And so they identify as indigenous peoples also. And so their voices are very relevant to this discussion. And the whole uh, idea that the whole American Southwest, including California, is part of Aslan, which is a wider Mexican indigenous world in the centuries before the invasion of the Europeans. And so are they wanting to keep the Peralta name and the Hacienda name, or are they wanting to change the name? Many of them, similar to the Ohlone collaborators we work with, are eager to keep somehow both, because as I say, as Corinna says, erasing the name would rob the discussion of how this history came to pass. And yet it has to reflect that for thousands of years, millennia, this land was, you you can't say belonged to in the modern ownership sense, but this is the land of the Ohlone and previous to that of other native peoples for millennia, many millennia. And in a certain native sense, they have been here forever because their creation stories reflect eternal presence on this land. And that's something we wish to uh, respect as well. Well, this is going to be a fascinating process to hear about and also to see what the results become. So thank you very much, Holly Alonso, Executive Director of the Peralta Historical Park. And Diane Wang, are there any virtual and safe social distancing events coming up that listeners may want to participate in? Yes, there are several events and a program this fall that I hope many listeners will consider. On the weekend of September 12th and 13th, which is just coming up, we will have an outdoor exhibit of all the work done this summer by young people, teenagers who were taking part in youth making history. They made large two by three foot masks like the ones we wear. One side is blue, they're folded. And the title of the exhibit is Inside My Mask. The people did several, they did autobiographical paintings on these enormous masks that are bound and have straps as though they're made for giants. And we will be displaying those along with some art books they made and huge platters that they collaged and painted for meaningful meals. All of these will be in an outdoor display area so that it will be safe inside the pavilion, which has been erected right on the site of where the Peraltas, when they first were given the land grant, had Ohlone laborers build the first non-native or non-indigenous residence in the East Bay. So this exhibit, Behind My Mask and Meaningful Meals, will be there at the site of where Oakland first began. And then that will be joining another exhibit that actually is up now. And everyone should come to see it. Black Lives Matter. This being Oakland, of course, when there were 
disturbances and people filling the streets and shop people were afraid of damage and put up plywood. Oakland always turns the threat of violence or trouble into beauty and into art. So many of the owners in the Fruitvale especially had muralists, and Oakland is so filled with artists, had murals done around the theme of Black Lives Matter. Now many of those shops have taken down those panels and we have them on display in the park outdoors, covering the replica of the old Rancho wall on the face of some of the buildings in the park, on the sides of the pavilion. It's a great safe place to come and just thrilling to see all the color and passion for Black Lives Matter. So people should come anytime to come see Black Lives Matter. They should come on the weekends between 12 and 3 to see Behind My Mask. And then for young people, we already have some programs planned for this fall. In addition to Black Lives Matter, which we just recently mounted, the, we already have a huge outdoor exhibit called Undocumented Heart. It shows the artwork and the life stories of undocumented workers who are here in Oakland. And it's a remarkable exhibit. These are undocumented workers who did both acrylic canvases, but also textile work with Marian Coleman, the Black artist who died this last year, showing their experiences coming to this country. And then alongside it, beneath their work, we have a timeline showing the history of Guatemala, El Salvador, Mexico, why people are being driven to the United States. It's an incredible exhibit. It's been up for a few months now, but that along with Black Lives Matter and our youth exhibits really get at what Oakland is. And the amazing thing is that it's that is outdoors as well. So Undocumented Heart, Black Lives Matter, and Inside My Mask, you can all enjoy them safely in this huge, beautiful outdoor space. Diane, did you have a last remark? Yes, I did. I didn't get to say that this fall, for 10 weeks, we have a program, Youth Making History. Young people can sign up either to do the outdoor work Saturdays from nine to two, we'll be nature journaling, we'll be cleaning up Peralta Creek, we'll be doing some video work to document what we do, we'll be preparing a presentation for different agencies. And then we have an online portion for those who aren't allowed out. It's twice a week through Zoom, We'll be studying many of the issues around water, the crises, the native perspectives on water, and ideas about what we can do. So anyone 
who is young and would like to participate in either the online or the on-site versions or both certainly should write to PeraltaHacienda.org. Go to our website and there's a link to fill in your interest form. Thank you. Could you give that address again? Yes, it's PeraltaHacienda.org. And there's a link there to sign up for Youth Making History, the Water Keepers Program. Well, thank you very much. Thank you both, Diane Wong and Holly Alonso, for this conversation. This has been Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. Welcome. You're listening to KPFA Radio. I'm Julieta Kusnid, and today is really a day I've been looking forward to for months. I think a lot of us have been waiting con mucha excitement, nerves, just waiting for this beautiful book to drop. I'm really excited today to get to focus our conversation with Roberto Lovato, who many people know as a media strategist, as an activist, perhaps as a professor, as a writer. But it's so wonderful to talk to him about his role as an author. We're going to talk to him about his newly released Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas. And I want to say Americas. So this is not United States of America. It's Las Americas. So, Roberto, it is such a pleasure to have you here with us. And KPFA is a place where you have spent time in many ways. We have had you on over, you know, various conversations and all these different campaigns that you've been sometimes on the front lines of oftentimes behind the scenes kind of in the in the strategy room making sure everything's going as planned and looking 10 steps ahead but I just want to share quickly um, as I'm introducing you I want to share with people a little bit about how I first connected to your work I'd heard your name I'd read your byline I had heard about your work at Carecen but really it was until your work around dropping the I word, getting rid of the word illegal, and when Lou Dobbs decided to go on attack again and basically make you his persona non grata of the day and, you know, really go in full attack mode, where I was like, oh, wow, this guy, Roberto Lovato, he's really, this is really working. All his media strategy work is really changing this conversation. So for me, it's just so beautiful to talk to you about all this work that you've done in your life, which is around centering humanity and the humanity of people who've been dehumanized for so long, how it's manifested in all these campaigns. And it's so exciting to get to talk to you about your book, which tells the backstory of why you have done the work you've done. So thank you so much, Roberto, for making the time to talk to us today. Wow. Well, we can just finish the interview right now because that was a great intro, Julieta. Thank you. It's an honor for me to be back with you and with KPFK and KPFA in Berkeley. You know, it's like I've been listening for decades since like La Onda Bajita when I was a lowrider kid here in the in the, in the Mission District. And um, 
I've always loved the programming. I I love being part of that family and 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 uh, and be part of a space that that's still critical at a time of such epic crisis. I mean, my book's not not really a biography; it's a memoir. Like you know, it's about parts of my life that are telling a larger story about violence and overcoming across 2,500 miles in 30 years um, from El Salvador to the U.S. And so, I mean, you know, like I like to say, I'm, I'm I'm not a tropical dude. I was born on Folsom Street in San Francisco. So, but I've also done some, I think, interesting things um, in El Salvador and other places. And so, um, I, I try to weave it together to tell the larger story of uh, of something I think we need right now, which is really a, a revolutionary sensibility that we're going to need to face not just Donald Trump and the rise of fascism or the decline of the U.S. economy and the U.S. itself or COVID-19. Once we deal with those, we're going to have to then go and face climate change. So to deal with this, we have to have something that a sense of ourselves, a sense of politics that goes beyond simply, God, am I going to vote for Kamala Harris and Joe Biden over Donald Trump? That's not going to get us anywhere. That's guaranteed to destroy more of the world as voting for Obama did and look at the world, you know, it's not better. So, you know, I, I, I thought I would share the most hopeful and powerful thing I could share. And that you did. That is the voice of Roberto Lovato. He's talking to us about unforgetting his beautiful, beautiful memoir. So I think what you've done just to start us off, which is so exactly where I wanted to go, which is I think you can't tell your story. We can't understand who you are if we don't understand your your family and we don't understand the mission. And I think a lot of people listening, maybe perhaps they think of the art and culture part, which is such a vibrant, rich incredible energy source for most of us activists and people who've been committed to building a more just world in the mission. They think of the murals, they think about the music, but I think what you point to is this beautiful, eclectic, transformative, but also gritty space that you inhabited that awoke a lot of your sensibilities in terms of connecting the dots between your family struggles and this possibility, this new world that could be possible. So why don't you tell us a little bit about some of what you dig into and people really should just, you know, this book gets into all the full details, but just to give them a taste of painting that picture. So why don't you just paint the picture of what was it like in the mission when you were finding yourself and growing up and becoming, becoming a young man? Well, I mean, like anybody, I have beautiful, beautiful memories of my childhood on Folsom Street of, you know, being with my mom, walking down Mission Street, and seeing, like, all these different restaurants that were Salvadoran restaurants. And I, you know, I noticed, like, oh, wow, this restaurant is called Salvadorian, R-E-A-N. And then we'd go down a few blocks, and then there's a restaurant called Salvadorian, I-A-N. Mm-hmm. And then you even see other places that had like El Salvadoranian and really ridiculous names. And so I was like, "Hey, mom, why why do we not have one name for us?" And she says, "I don't know, Mijo. People like different people like to talk in different ways." So I was like, "Oh wow, we're so we're a people without an identity as Salvadoreños." 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's a universal story for a lot of us, especially Latinos in the U.S., right? We're still only 1% of all the books published in the United States. And if you look at TV and movies, it's as bad or worse, you know, in terms of the numbers and even the images and the stories. It's cartoonish. So if you don't have a story, you don't have a, a life. And if you don't have a life, people can take it. And that's one of the ways that racism works in the in the world and in the U.S. is that you know, black lives don't matter because there's a society that decided that they didn't matter from slavery onward. Well, there's not, you know, there's there's another story that's our story that, that you know, that includes Afro-Latinos and others, but, you know, those called Latino have a, have a, have an untold story and, and a forgotten story. So I, you know, I, I think that also applies to our families. Like, I grew up on Folsom Street and my, my house had pictures of all my mom's family, but there were no pictures of my dad's family except Mamate, my grandmother. And so I was like, you know, wanted to be like Detective Columbo and figure out well, what's up with this. You know, why why aren't there any pictures of my dad's family? So there's a secret. And so in the same way that there's secrets in the family, there are secrets in a country like the United States or El Salvador. And so my father was a janitor with the United Airlines and my mom was a maid with higher regency. Which meant, you know, I was the best traveled kid to ever come out of any body in the United States because I got free airline tickets and discounted hotel. And I was basically having what Shakespeare called rich eyes and poor hands. And the place we most went to uh, was El Salvador. And I got to spend a lot of time there and see a country on the verge of war and all the ways that the secrets, you know, the underground death squads, the... Uh, underground guerrilla movement, the of the FMLN, what became the FMLN eventually in the 19 early 80s, uh, were forming in the 70s when I was a kid playing on the streets, and there was, you know, on the streets there were um, graffiti of like you know Revolución o Muerte or something, and I, I didn't actually even know what it was all about as a kid. I was just playing marbles or playing soccer or playing with friends on top of you know, uh, graffiti or poetry on the ground or, or, or on the walls of, of these poor areas where my family lived. So, you know, my, my book's basically about stitching together the story between the mission and El Salvador, between the United States and El Salvador. And I kind of do it as an underworld journey because those secrets of families are connected this to the secrets of nations. And so I go down into both and connect the two because they're intimately connected. If you don't know the history of your country, then you don't know yourself and you live in a dangerous country. And we do right now, as we can see in uh, Donald Trump. And I would actually argue with a Barack Obama, you know, who didn't really do a lot for Salvadoreños, for example, except cage our children, separate them, and push them to their deaths in the desert like Donald Trump does. So, I don't know, I, you know, it's the personal and the political, that's kind of the, 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 the thread, and, and, and I try to do it in a way that, 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 that is as beautiful as possible, because I realize that I don't have a bullet in my head for all the things that I've seen through 30 years of war, mass grave sites, gang violence, and other, like, really epic things that, that I saw as a, either a journalist, or as a, or as a fighter, or, an activist. So beauty is what gets us through, and that's kind of one of the main points is that we need 
we're going to have to really arm ourselves with heavy doses of beauty to face the brave new world that's that's here and that's coming. That's the voice of Roberto Lovato, and he is talking to us about his recently released book, Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas. And I 100% agree with you, Roberto, and that line, that storyline or that thread that is through this whole book is really that, that commitment to honoring what is beautiful and just complete compromiso. So for me, you know, I always look to translate what compromiso means in English. And sometimes people say, oh, it's commitment. Oh, it's just being really dedicated. But that's not the same thing as it means in a Latin American or Latino context, which compromiso can sometimes mean putting yourself in front of a firing squad. Compromiso can sometimes mean, you know, sharing a clandestine book that could get you in a lot of trouble Compromiso can mean being a teacher where you could be hauled off, et cetera. Um, and I think about the compromiso that is throughout this book that I feel that it's couldn't be more relevant right now for everyone to read. But especially I feel like this is a really good book for people to share and gift to their young people that maybe are feeling like, oh, nothing's ever going to change. There's a lot of cynicism right now. So if you could talk to us about your compromise and take us back to the mindset where you decided to go back to El Salvador, not as a visitor, not, you know, just with your family, but actually to be part of what would what was an opportunity to build a new El Salvador. Yeah, this is one of the parts of myself that I forgot. And that's why I call the book Unforgetting, right? Not not the only reason, but there's different you know, there's different things that are forgotten. And there are different things we have to unforget and unlearn, you know, because our education system doesn't really teach us. It it learns us what it wants us to learn and hides what it wants us not to know. So, uh, I for you know, for 30 years, I've hidden the fact in public about a decision I made in the, you know, towards the tail end of the war in El Salvador um, to join the uh, FMLN guerrillas, the Frente Farabundo Martí para Liberación Nacional, FMLN. I uh, had, you know, been to El Salvador. I fell in love with a revolutionary. There's a love story in my book, speaking of beautiful things. And um, I'm, you know, powerfully influenced by people like, you know, this woman, G, who I fell in love with, who lives in San Francisco still. And who was a revolutionary with the Frente and other people like her who, you know, they actually weren't even out about their own militancy. Everybody in the FMLN, except for a few people like G, when she became a diplomat, she was out. But most of us were not out about that commitment. And, um, you know, I, so that's a form of forgetting. So I had forgotten for 30 years the one of the most beautiful parts of me, I think, which is the part of me that decided after seeing horrific things done to children, not just separating them or caging them, but bombing them and strafing them and seeing the kids afterwards or seeing the remains of the children on walls, on adobe walls. You know, after seeing these things, I got so angry, and, you know, and, and combined with the anger of, like, growing up with my dad who, you know, I loved, but I also kind of hated early on. I decided to do something to rebel and I joined and I and I hid that. And so um 
I, 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 my book is kind of a coming out of sorts. I come out and share with people the process of, I guess, becoming a revolutionary, a literal revolutionary, not just like some Bernie Sanders thing or, you know, some Red Bud Lucian, like, you know, they used to talk about Budweiser or something, some commercial. I'm talking about real, um, real commitment, real envisioning of a better world and a real decision to do whatever is necessary to change the conditions that prevent that world from coming into into fruition. So um, a big part of Unforgetting is kind of the story of of how I, I used to be an American. I used to love G.I. Joe, Captain America, the Brady Bunch. You know, I grew up, you know, being a gringo kid who didn't like the taste of when I would visit my cousin in El Salvador, I wouldn't like the taste of the frosted flakes or the milk was thicker and weird. And, you know, everybody was always wanting to talk about my English and making fun of my Spanish because I didn't speak it right. And my curly hair, they called me Michael Yaxong. <laughs> and so, you know, how I went from, from, from being an American who didn't like El Salvador to being a person that loved El Salvador so much, grew to love El Salvador so much that I decided to make a commitment at the risk of my own life, for especially for those children, because it's really the children that are the the force of revolution. The children, what happens to the children, the way they treat children, are one of the things I think that makes for revolutionaries. It happened in 1932 during La Matanza, where the indigenous people rebelled against the the deaths of their children. It happened in the 80s. And I think it's happening with the gangs. Unfortunately, the gangs aren't really in a revolutionary rebellion, but they're in a rebellion against the capitalist system that created them, right, and and created the cities that are failing our young people. So young people out there who want to get a sense of what that part of themselves, they feel angry, they feel they want to change the world, where I'm offering my book as an example of something that I did back in the day and the things that I learned that I think are still valuable. Like there's there's some amazing people that I've met. Like I have friends who were trained by the top commanders of the force that defeated the French Empire, that defeated the Japanese, that defeated the most powerful empire of the time, the United States the Vietnamese generals who defeated them. So my, I have friends who were trained by them in, in, in strategy and political military thinking and how to think about politics, how to do politics in a different way, how to conspire, conspirar, which is in Salvadoran terms not a negative thing like it is in English, but it means, you know, how to do the things uh, below awareness of the state so that you can subvert the state. And so... Um, aprendí a conspirar with the salvadoreños and my friends, you know, they would, you know, they would, they were trained by these guys and I would be like, all right, hey, give me the Jedi knowledge of revolution. What is it? So in my own small way, cause I wasn't in it like a lot of people, I was in it, you know, at the late end of the revolution, but I did learn things and I study and I've kept studying these ways and I, I, I don't put them out like here, here's how you, you know, here's how you put together, uh, a weapon or something. I, I, I talk about more about the cultural and the spiritual stuff you that are I think critical because the the thing that makes the difference in a war 
or in politics is the spirit of the matter. It's the spirit of the troops. It's like, why does the United States get its ass kicked in most of the major engagements that it has now against far less equipped and, and, and um, forces like in Vietnam or in Iraq or in Afghanistan because of the spirit, because when a bullet flies by your head, you don't say, oh, please, Karl Marx, you know, help me out here. You're like, it's your spirit that uh, says I'm here risking my life for a reason and I'm going to stand my ground. So uh, I try to communicate some of that spirit that the Salvadoreño people have in droves, right? Mm -hmm. One of every three Salvadoreños was organized against the state during the war. That's an astounding number of people that were organized in this tiny country. Imagine if we had one of every three of us right now organized against the state. We would not have the problems we have with Donald Trump, Harris, or um, Joe Biden. No, no, no. You're 100% right on that. And I feel like something that you do so beautifully in Unforgetting in your book, I feel like you are doing the cultural work, which is, you are building all these pieces of paper that have been ripped up and spread out so people couldn't construct the jigsaw puzzle that is, you know, why we're here. Why are we in this country anyway? Why do my, why does my family feel such guilt and shame and all these complex emotions around what, what we're doing here and who we are and what we're worth? And I think that the experience of just feeling like you're almost a ghost and living this world you're working to undo which is connecting those dots and and putting our story in a larger context and speaking to all the ways that people have been so strong and also are have this warrior spirit i remember i interviewed you a lot during the caravan for peace and justice um and the caravan that you did related to the drug war and i remember thinking this is really a cornerstone in roberto robato's work it's you know, a lot of people, drug war survivors, it's not sexy. People don't like talking to people who are formerly involved with the drug war. They, you know, those people have been thrown out. They've been thrown out with the trash, right? And your work has really been consistently to say, hey, what's going on here? How do we put a face story and how do we hear and feel the heart of these people that are the majority of this whole world? We are all those people. So can you tell us a little bit about how in Unforgetting, some of the people that you can, if you read the book, which I 100% recommend, or you can even listen to it, right? I think people can yeah. listen to it as well. So we have a lot of folks probably who prefer audiobooks. So you can also listen to the book. So can you tell us about someone that you introduced the readers to in your book that maybe perhaps if they were just supporting hegemonic ways of thinking and, you know, like they saw the world through the ways that we are portrayed, the Latinos or people who are involved in, you know, the drug trade or whatever it is, they wouldn't understand. So introduce us to someone that maybe you wouldn't get to hear or feel or understand their story if you didn't get to read this book. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's major and minor characters. They're not characters. They're real people. But, you know, I, I, I use these terms just to describe folks in my book there's minor major characters like there's a guy i mentioned very briefly i uh when i was at carecen in san francisco and carecen comité refugiados centroamericanos there was a guy leonardo who uh they called him el soldado and i started you know he's a nice guy had a kind of like one of these 
you know, very heavily like a topographic map that J.D. Salinger would talk about. He had a lot of pimples on his face, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, Pac, kind of like Edward James almost. Mm-hmm. And Leonardo was a quiet but really gentle, nice guy, campesino, you know, background. You could tell by the way he talked. Um, Bea, you know, he used Bea a lot to, to say it was, it was it means truth, but it's just a way of saying verdad. But say bea. So you know, um, Leonardo uh, would go to protest with us and everything. And then I, you know, I started finding out about his background, and I found out he was in the Escuadrones de la Muerte, the Death Squad. Right, Leonardo mm-hmm. was a soldado who was in a Death Squad, and he confessed this to the compañeros after Caresen took on his case in political asylum because, you know, they were a legal organization as much as an advocacy organization, and they helped people, including this guy who was an ex-Dead Squad operative who kind of had this transformation by being, he wanted to give back to Caresen, and he ended up being there full-time, like, you know, when he was not working. And El Soldado, like, you know, he was really active, and he, but he had, you know, he was trying to make up for his sins. And I think part of what I'm trying to do by talking about death squad operatives or that I interview, there's other ones that I interview in the book that I got to know over the years in El Salvador and in the U.S. And, you know, ex-guerrilleras and guerrilleros that I knew and gang leaders. Top, I've, I've interviewed like the very top of the gang chain. You know, in these secret hideouts, you know, in these really scary places in the in El Salvador, in urban and rural El Salvador. So I kind of bring the reader to these to meet these people, so that people can see them and their in where they are, not just in their place, but who they are as people. And inevitably, what I find is a human being. And that's the hard thing we have to kind of tangle with because the way that the world talks about whether a death squad operative or a gang member is a non-human being. They're inhuman. They do inhuman acts. Don't get me wrong. I don't romanticize any of these people. I take my security measures appropriately every time I meet them. But I'm also not blind to the fact that they are part of the human race, like it or not. And those are the things I think we have to get to where we we have to make our narratives more complex, especially as Salvadoreños. If you look at Salvadoreños, the main image of Salvadoreños in the world are gangs. Mm-hmm. Right now, I would send students when I was a, you know, co-founding Central American Studies at Cal State Northridge in Southern California, uh, in what was the first Central American Studies program. The st- I would send the students to go find stories about Salvadoreños. Tell me what the articles are that are the majority articles. And inevitably, the stories were about gangs, overwhelmingly. And it remains to this day, and it remains... The image remains the tattoo-faced gang member, which is not even a reality anymore. Like, top-level, low-level gang leaders aren't painting their faces with tattoos for years, but the media still uses that like it is. And so we need to kind of get at that monster image to get behind the deeper truths behind the monster image. And some of those truths are very difficult to look at. But they're necessary to look at, especially as the world itself becomes more monstrous, right? As the world itself becomes monstrous, you don't want to look at the news. You don't want to – you get depressed. Well, not looking at it and knowing it's there doesn't help your depression. 
So my strategy, and I feel like it worked for me personally, was to dive into the abyss for the better part of my adult life over 30 years and look straight at at the mass grave sites, at the at the at the at the screams and shrieks of a fat mother that lost her kid, at a death squad operative, at a high level gang leader, at my own family and the secrets that my family has. I'm not going to give away the secrets because I want people to read it. Otherwise, they won't get the effect that I want them to have. But I'll tell you, I go in. And I I had to have the courage to go in and look at my own family, which really is as difficult as looking at a mass gravesite or going to a, a a scary place with a gang leader or to be in the in in the middle of the war with the with the frente. It's as difficult as difficult a thing as it is to look at the difficult truths of our families. But I guarantee you, you on the other side, you come out a better person, just like the underworld ideas of the. Now what people peoples where their ideas of the underworld included like death and a bunch of fragmented bones, but then those bones have their own life, and there's this part of the underworld in the indigenous um belief that is like aquamarine beautiful place underneath the ugly, dark, and fiery places. It's a trip you know their their concept of the underworld was far more complex and colorful and sophisticated than the rather dumbass hell that we've inherited in the Western tradition. That's the voice of Roberto Lovato. We're talking about Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas. And what you're talking about, Roberto, is exactly the hardest part because what you did, I think writing a book about El Salvador, you know, taking a professor role, you know, you've done a lot of analysis, you do a lot of writing, but what you did is much harder, which is something you've done throughout your writing is that you center your own experience, your your heart, your experience when you look at the kids, you know, that are being held with, away from their parents. You know, we can feel what you're feeling, and that's a lot more painful. So it's a lot harder when we're thinking and feeling all the ways that maybe, you know, the reasons that, you know, we dealt with certain things that our family dynamics are the way they are or understanding these different things connected to the intense trauma and the loss and the sadness and the fear that are our peoples, because this is really a truly a Latin American experience where we have, you know, a history of, you know, of course, colonialism and imperialism, which has led to many people having secrets and those secrets relating to wars that have not been explained, massacres that have not been uncovered, disappearances, desaparecidos. We all, all of our peoples have desaparecidos. So I think this is such a universal story, even though it's a very Salvadoran story, which is so, so needed and so crucial and really, truly absent, which is heartbreaking. But also, you know, that's your, that is your job. That's what you set out to remedy. So something I want us to touch on, I know we're um, running out of time and I could talk to you for hours, Roberto, because it's always such a pleasure and I really recommend people get to sit and enjoy and savor your words that have been very carefully put together. The story is just very beautiful. Um, but I want you to touch on the fact that you are definitely have always been a fighter, even, you know, in all those different incarnations. You talk about how you had your evangelical turn and you, you know, became very justly righteous in terms of your love of God and love of, you know, the church, et cetera. Um, you talk about many ways that you have been super passionate and committed to, you know, 
bringing others on board and also working towards this better world. But one thing that is throughout this book in the way it's written, but also you honor in many different ways, is your love of words and your love of poetry. Um, and how I think people, um, when they think about revolutionary work or when they think about how to make the world better, they oftentimes put cultural work to the margins and they say, oh, yeah, that's fine. You know, um, that's, 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 that can go over there. Um, but you have really centered that and that's what your book does. It centers stories that otherwise would be created invisible and, you know, people wouldn't hear otherwise. So tell us about kind of how poetry and how cultural work has taken on this really powerful part of your life's work, really. I mean, looking well, at this book, that's, that's a core part of it. Yeah, I can share uh, one of the uh, uh, stories from when I was becoming radicalized here in San Francisco. I was, you know, running with all these really radical Central Salvadoran people, many of whom were revolutionaries back home in, in the Frente, but they were kind of just doing, you know, they couldn't be out about their militancy because they were undocumented, many of them, and they were, you know, they were, you know, the FBI was infiltrating our organizations and the Salvadoran death squads were actually active in California. And so we had to be very careful. And, and and I was just starting to discover my revolutionary kind of spine. And, you know, feeling like Godzilla, like electric, because it's one thing to go, si se puede, with Cesar Chavez or something. It's a whole nother thing to be like, you know, revolucion o muerte and really like be meaning it. And so... Um, you know, being in this environment and my, I'm feeling like Godzilla electric. I meet this elderly man named Tio Chepe, they called him. And Tio Chepe, like, you know, he was a really, really nice guy. He worked at the front desk and he's in his seventies and he'd give me like cassettes with revolutionary music on him. Hey, Lobato, toma, quiero que leas esto. I want you to read this. So yeah, he was really cool. But you know, I, I beat my attitude. I was just starting and you know, you kind of the arrogance of youth. I go, hey, you know, you know, my attitude, hey, hey, viejito. I ain't got time for you right now, man. I'm gonna go be the next Che Guevara, dude. So, you know, I, I, I you know, I, 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 I didn't really make time for him, and so I am invited to this secret meeting one day, um, at a house, um, by invitation only, and um, you know, it's a gathering to celebrate the anniversary of what was known as the FPL, the Fuerzas Populares de Liberación, one of the five organizations of the FMLN. And one of the compañeros says, okay, everybody, we have the honor, the great honor of having with us a man who has fought to, who, to, to end the longest standing military dictatorship in the Americas, the dictatorship of Hernandez Martinez, the guy who perpetrated the matanza, the slaughter of the indigenous people, thousands of indigenous people in 1932, which is a fundamental issue in Salvadoran history. And he says, yeah, you know, and, and ever since then he's been fighting He's been fighting since the 1940s. And so, you know, and he gave up his, you know, his kids were the founders of the FPL, the Fuerzas Populares de Liberación. So this guy's like an incredible revolutionary figure. And I present to you Jose Belisario Peña. And out of, through the door of this kitchen into the living room comes in, who else, but the elderly guy I was dissing, Tio, Pap, Tio Chepe. Dio Chepe turned out to be one of the greatest revolutionary figures in Salvadoran history. <laughs> so I had, you know, I had been blowing him off because I thought I was like this Godzilla Che Guevara dude <laughs> as a kid. And, 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 and little did I realize that, that 
you know, I was in the presence of somebody who was trying to share with me the the music, the poetry that is absolutely necessary for the spiritual part of becoming whether a guerrilla fighter, a revolutionary, a a person who's really committed to social change. You have to have spiritual sustenance that's going to sustain you, right? You have to. In a world like the one we live in now, you got to have something that keeps you animated, hopeful, positive, and ready to fight. And I'll just end with, it's my honor to be on the show and to call you, my friend, Julieta. You're in my acknowledgments because you're among the friends that helped sustain me during the time that I, I was writing this book that was very, very difficult to write. And uh, I give a heartfelt thanks to you and all my friends in San Francisco and, and in different places for, for for making me who I am. That's the voice of Roberto Lovato. Please do yourself a favor, read his book, share his book, listen to his book, and muchísimas gracias por esta obra, que realmente es un proyecto que todos podemos tener un, un pedacito. We all have a little piece of it, and that's that's the beauty of it. So um, thank you so much for creating something so personal, political, and couldn't be more relevant at this very, very, very moment. Muchas gracias. De, de nuevo, Roberto, por estar con nosotros. My pleasure. You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. If you'd like to stay up on our news, like us on Facebook, at La Raza Chronicles on Facebook. If you want to hear this program or share it with a friend, you can go to soundcloud.com slash La Raza Chronicles and share it. If you have any ideas for interviews we should be doing or would like to get involved with our collective, you can email us at lajasachronicles at kpfa.org. Muchísimas gracias y buenas noches.